Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with Ukraine still fighting for their freedom nearly two weeks into Russia's unprovoked act of aggression. Facing stiff resistance on the ground, Vladimir Putin's overextended forces continue a strategy of siege warfare, bombarding Ukraine's cities from the air with missiles and artillery. With no regard for civilian casualties, the onslaught has laid waste to hospitals, schools and apartments, trapping Ukraine's residents in an active war zone. After Russia violated a number of ceasefire agreements, both countries today agreed to evacuate the besieged city of Sumy in northeastern Ukraine, where residents began to flee this morning. It comes after that city faced intense shelling overnight, which killed 21 people, including two children, according to Ukrainian authorities. Likewise, police say that another 2,000 civilians were able to flee today from the city of Irpin, just outside the capital of Kiev. That's where, over the weekend, Russian forces struck an evacuation route in a sudden and apparently deliberate attack. And that city continues to be targeted as Russia attempts to surround Kyiv. Describe to me what's going on in here, It's hell. Uh, no, not real hell, like in Donbass or Kharkiv now, but uh, every day, every second, we hear bomb, 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 bomb. And in, in our street, just was right, uh, very large. Corona, Corona. Russian uh, column of convoy yes. Russian vehicles. Yes, and uh, they just shot in our houses. It's hell. And today, Ukraine is again accusing Russia of striking at an evacuation route out of Mariupol, where roughly 200,000 civilians are trying to escape an increasingly dire situation. That city, which is now surrounded by Russian forces, has been without power, gas or water for a week. Corpses reportedly line the street where residents are scavenging for food in urgent need of relief. This was the fourth day in a row that attempts to evacuate Mariupol have failed due to Russian shelling, according to the Wall Street Journal. All these heartbreaking scenes make it clear why Putin's war of choice has fueled a mass exodus of more than two million refugees. That's an estimated 100 Ukrainians leaving their country every minute. Among them, roughly one million are children who've had to leave behind everything they've ever known. I really want to go home because they're my friends, they're beautiful parks, uh, supermarkets, uh, centers, and uh, playgrounds behind my house. Um, they're my toys, they're my friends, and I don't know where my friends now. But among those heartbreaking scenes, there are also signs of hope and solidarity. Today, President Zelensky was met with a standing ovation from the British Parliament after a rousing and evocative speech. 
Among other things, he called Russia a terrorist state and pled for more support. But most notably, he echoed the words of Winston Churchill as he vowed to fight the Russian invaders to the very end. I would like to remind you the words that the United Kingdom have already heard, which are important again. We will not give up and we will not lose. We will fight till the end at sea, in the air. We will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. We've seen that fighting spirit today among Ukrainian women, some of whom are marking International Women's Day with videos showcasing their resolve to fight Russia. This comes as President Biden today announced the United States will ban imports of Russian oil, which will further squeeze the Russian economy. We also learned that Poland has offered to immediately transfer all of its Russian-made fighter jets to a U.S. airbase in Germany. However, U.S. officials says that neither the Pentagon nor the State Department were consulted on that proposal. Joining me now from Lviv, Ukraine, is NBC News correspondent Cal Perry. I want to start there, Cal, because this plan by Poland to transfer fighter jets not directly to Ukraine, but to Germany, meaning that the United States is now responsible for somehow getting them um, into the hands of Ukrainians and Ukrainian pilots. That sounds to me like Poland decided to, I don't know, shirk the responsibility and pass the buck. And I wonder how that is going to work out. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear they're looking for a middleman to give these jets to instead of transferring them directly here. There's an obvious reason for that, right? We've heard NATO saying that this could be one of the things that starts a world war. This is why NATO does not want to put a no-fly zone in here. We've heard from the secretary general saying he believes more lives will be saved by limiting the war here in Ukraine, as difficult as that is to imagine. We've been talking about these jets now for three days. It was interesting. Uh, Three days ago, the question was, how are we going to get, how will the Ukrainian military get the jets out of Poland. The idea at that point that was floated by the Ukrainian government was maybe that pilots would drive across the border into Poland and then fly the jets here. Clearly, the Polish government didn't want that. It is interesting, obviously, that the Americans were caught off guard with this. Senior uh, defense officials telling my colleague Courtney Kuby they were caught off guard. They saw this as a unilateral Polish decision. They did not know that this was coming. And it is that push and pull. You have these European nations, these members of NATO, who do not want to abandon Ukraine. They don't want to leave Ukraine at the hands of the Russian army. And at the same time, they don't want to be the reason that Vladimir Putin widens this war. It is an interesting question as we move forward in this conflict, as I'm only 50 miles from the Polish border. We know that weapons are coming across somewhere. We don't know where. We don't know how. There's an obvious reason that we don't know those things. So how do these nations find their way through this as kids are dying in these basements across the eastern part of the country? And these are the words of President Zelensky. How can the West stand by? and do nothing. So Poland is trying to do something without being a target, without leaving the Ukrainian people behind. It is an impossible line to walk, Joy.
And the thing is, you know, Poland has accepted, you know, I think roughly half a million people. They are they are accepting refugees um, coming out of Ukraine. So, as you said, they're not doing nothing. Um, but it strikes me that the United States has been incredibly transparent. The Biden administration has given all the intelligence that you could possibly give. They've been very open about that intelligence. They've tried to really work hand in hand with our NATO allies. And yet now you have Poland saying, well, we'll give you the jets. But A, we want you, the U.S., to figure out how to get them into Ukraine. And B, we want uh, allegedly, apparently, to have sort of reimbursement jets sent to us. It, it, John Kirby, um, the, 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 the spokesperson for the Pentagon, said that he has serious, this raises serious concerns for the entire NATO alliance, saying it's simply not clear to us that there's a substantive rationale for it, because I thought the big fear was a direct confrontation between the United States and Russia. This seems to set us up for that. Right. And look, under Article 5, it doesn't really matter as far as NATO concerned is concerned, because if the U.S. were to engage with Russian forces, and let's be very clear, the president of the United States has made it clear that as far as he's concerned, that is not going to happen. The Defense Department has made it clear that is not going to happen. But if it were to happen, Article 5 would trigger and and Poland would have to step in under the NATO charter. Um, so all of this is sort of interesting. It's, it's a shuffling of these jets around. It's also interesting what you're saying, that Poland is willing to give up these MiG jets in exchange for new jets coming from the U.S. to sort of backfill their arsenal. Um, but why is it that they're only willing to hand it off to the Americans? I mean, that's the real question. And the follow-up question is, why didn't they run this by the Americans before they announced it? Why was this announcement made without coordinating with the Pentagon, without coordinating with the White House? It almost seems like they're passing the buck. But again, walking this fine line where they want to show the Ukrainian people, they want to show the Ukrainian president, and he has been calling for these jets now for three, four days. He has been screaming for a uh, no-fly zone and for these airplanes. So it's almost like the Polish government is saying we are satisfying the president of Ukraine's request without getting involved directly with Russia, Joy. Yeah, it's um, an interesting move. I will put it that way. Cal Perry, thank you very much. Stay safe. I'm joined now by Ina Solfsen, a member of the Ukrainian parliament. And I do want to ask you, um, thank you so much for being here and talking with us about that offer by Poland, because it does seem to me uh, that they're the, right there in the region. Transferring it to Germany um, is not transferring it directly to Ukraine. Time is of the essence. It will take time to do this two-way handoff, particularly since the Americans weren't even consulted. What do you make of this decision by Poland to hand over the jets, which is good, but to do it this way? Well, frankly speaking, that does sound like a bit of an odd uh, scheme. We were not sure exactly how the Polish side will proceed. Uh, we uh, were extremely happy to learn that uh, this uh, whole idea of giving us uh, the fighter jets uh, seems to be, uh, you know, going on. Uh, but now it seems like there will still be some time before we actually get the jets. And in our case, uh, unfortunately, time is is uh, calculated in human lives lost. We do know as of now that five children are killed every day. So every day of delay was delivering those jets to Ukraine for any reason, be it logistical, political, or anything else, uh, is, is uh, actually, it does lead to more children's lives lost here in Ukraine. So we do hope that will be figured out one way or another pretty soon. Because uh, this, what Putin is doing and shelling from the air and bombarding our cities is just so, so very terrifying.
The, 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 it's hard to detect what the goal is at this point of the Russian operation because they have clearly soured every single Ukrainian, whether they're Russian speaking or Ukrainian speaking against Russia. They will not be able to control this country and occupy it. That's not going to work. It's not going to happen. I think it's very clear their military is far substandard of what it was built to be. Then do you get the sense that the idea is to empty Ukraine, to, to make these cities bereft and empty so that they can occupy a, a, a shell if, rather than allow Ukraine to emerge as a Western democracy? Do you think that Russia at this point would rather just destroy Ukraine um, rather than even try to hold it? That is very much the feeling. Uh, it's, it's terrifying, but it seems like this, that the Russian strategic operation has failed. They were planning to take over the city of Kiev the first uh, uh, one to three days of the war. Uh, that failed. They haven't managed to capture Kharkiv, despite the heaviest bombardment of the city. Uh, it's, it's my native city. It pains me to see what they did to Kharkiv. But they still didn't get into the city. And actually, Ukrainian army did push them further from the city in the last couple of days in Kharkiv. They cannot get into the city of Mariupol, despite the, the, the terrible... Uh, lives lost there, uh, but they cannot get into the city. They cannot proceed in the south to the city of Mykolaiv, which is defending itself so very strongly. So they cannot achieve any of their military goals. So it seems that given that, they now just turn to a different strategy of uh, just killing civilians. And we actually do have evidence from some Russian soldiers who were captured by the Ukrainian soldiers who were saying this, that they were given direct orders to shoot at civilians. And that is why what we were seeing in the city of Irpin, where they were not allowing uh, people with children to be evacuated, uh, what we're seeing in Mariupol is exactly with this goal in mind, just to terrify the civilian population. But, but this is inhumane. You this is terrible, but this seems to be the, their strategy or their tactics right yeah. now. You posted this uh, video, it's a pretty arresting video, um, of women, Ukrainian women, um, and all kitted out, ready to fight. Uh, it is International Women's Day, and the, sort of the emphasis on the women who are, you know, staying behind. You have women who are heroically getting their children out and getting their elderly parents out, but also women who are staying and fighting. In your mind, is the preparation of the government of Ukraine gearing up toward an insurgency, to be honest, because that video reminded me um, of the kind of insurgencies that we've seen around the country, around the world, in, in other conflicts. Is that what you're gearing up for, an insurgency? We still hope, uh, and I'm, I'm not uh, the military strategist here, so uh, so that's up for the military to decide, but it uh, still feels like uh, Ukrainian army is actually uh, more or less in control of the situation to an extent possible. Uh, we are actually uh, fighting the Russians, and uh, the Ukrainian army is uh, holding the ground. So they are uh, making sure that the Russians cannot proceed any further and so on. Uh, they're ensuring that they blockade the ways uh, for them to proceed, uh, blown up bridges and so on. Uh, it's terrifying, but that seems to be what the strategy of the Ukrainian army is. So we do hope that we shall be able to fight that uh, on the ground with the regular uh, army. Uh, 
And and this video is just because of the International Women's Day and because uh, so many women are fighting in the Ukrainian army right now. We actually have a very high uh, number of women in the army. It's it's up to 20 percent, which is which is rather high for for any army of the world. And uh, this video was just uh, my appreciation of uh, uh, women who are directly fighting on the front line. There, there are quite many of them. There have been before, but even now it's it's even more. Uh, but I do hope that we shall be able to fight it sooner rather than later, uh, particularly with the uh, jets hopefully at some point being delivered to our pilots and securing our sky. I'm sure that as soon as the sky is secured, we shall be able to fight on the ground. We have proven to be able and capable of doing that, of fighting this this Russian army, which uh, you truly call the substandard. Uh, that's, uh, that's what it turns out to be. They're extremely demotivated. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, once they're captured by the Ukrainian uh, soldiers, they start crying and say, like, we were thinking we are bringing peace here, but we realize that we are actually killing civilians here. I don't have empathy for them frankly speaking i i uh, mm. but but that seems to be part of the problem with the russian army is their morale side they don't understand what they're doing and they have no motivation to proceed yeah. Uh, well, I have to say there are some in our country who question uh, whether women should be a part of the military and whether having more women in the military is a good thing. I think that the valiancy of the Ukrainian military overall, um, including the brave women who are a part of it, um, has proven those people wrong. Anybody who thinks that is obviously wrong. Ukrainian member of parliament, Ina Sovsun, please stay safe. Thank you so much for spending some time with us this evening. And still ahead on the readout. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. A bold move by President Biden, but what will it mean for gas and energy prices here at home? Plus, Putin's invasion is taking far longer and costing more Russian lives than most experts predicted. How do we account for his stalled northern offensive? And what is he capable of doing if it remains bogged down? The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Today, we remain united. We remain united in our purpose to keep pressure mounting on Putin and his war machine. This is a step that we're taking to inflict further pain on Putin. But there will be cost as well here in the United States. I said I would level with the American people from the beginning. And when I first spoke to this, I said defending freedom is going to cost. It's going to cost us as well in the United States. That was President Biden account, accounting, announcing today that the United States would ban 
all Russian oil imports, a move that will come at a severe cost to Russians and have ramifications in the U.S. as well. While America imports only 4% of Russian oil, today's announcement sent prices skyrocketing, with a barrel of oil trading at roughly $130. Just two weeks ago, it was trading for roughly $95. President Biden noted that he would do his best to insulate Americans from the pain at the pump and said that it was an opportunity for America to become a leader in clean energy technology. This crisis is a stark reminder to protect our economy over the long term. We need to become energy independent. That'll mean tyrants like Putin won't be able to use fossil fuels as weapons against other nations. And it will make America a world leader, manufacturing and exporting clean energy technologies of the future. Hours later, Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced that the United Kingdom would phase out Russian oil imports by the end of the year. In a video addressed today, President Zelensky thanked President Biden and Prime Minister Johnson and encouraged other countries to do the same. Yesterday, Russia's deputy prime minister warned that a rejection of Russian oil would lead to catastrophic consequences for the global market. Russia is the world's third largest oil producer behind the U.S. and Saudi Arabia and the world's largest exporter of crude to global markets. The European Union receives about 40 percent of its gas via Russian pipelines. Finland and Latvia receive roughly 90 percent of their gas from Russia. And Germany, which has expressed skepticism about cutting off Russia, receives roughly 50 percent of its gas from Russia. Late today, Fitch, a credit rating firm, cut Russia's financial rating, moving the country's outlook into junk territory and warned that a Russian debt default is imminent. Joining me now, Congressman David Cicilline of Rhode Island. He's a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And Stephanie Rule, host of MSNBC's The 11th Hour with Stephanie Rule and an NBC News senior business correspondent. Uh, Congressman, I'm going to start with you. I I know that there is House legislation that's also um, going through pending that would ban the imports of Russian oil. What's the difference between that House legislation and what President Biden announced today? Well, President Biden's announcement today is to ban the import of oil. But in addition to that, he included provisions to prohibit the financing of Russian energy projects, uh, which is very, very important, and also prohibited the investments in the Russian energy sector by American companies. So there are additional provisions in the executive order. The legislation uh, is still being crafted, but it, ha- it relates to the trade status of Russia, as well as the banning of the import of Russian oil. And Stephanie, if I could go to you just to sort of explain this in regular people terms, which you're so good at doing, uh, my friend and colleague, and congrats. I haven't gotten a chance to congrats, uh, congratulate you on the new show. The, the market is global, right? So if the United States says we're not going to buy any more Russian oil, it's not as if that turns off a certain spigot of it. I mean, the market is actually global. The prices are set globally. But how does Russia, uh, how does the United States and the U.K., cutting back uh, on our uh, consumption of really relatively smaller amounts of oil impact the market. Okay, so let's just break this down, Joy, because the United States produces an enormous amount of its own oil and gas. Less than 10% do we even get from Russia. So we don't have a supply issue. What we deal with now is a price issue. If Russia suddenly has nowhere to sell their oil, because it's not just the United States, it's the UK, it's the EU. I mean, the EU gets up to 40% of their oil and natural gas from Russia. If Russia doesn't have anywhere to sell it, that's a problem for them. But as you said, the The price is set globally. So if the price of oil is suddenly $200 a barrel, even if we don't need Russian oil, we're going to have to pay that increased price. 
So there's two things that happens from there. We're now dealing with increased gas prices, and everyone, for good reason, is obviously very, very upset about that. And this is a point where you and I should smile real, real big for the boys at Fox News, because this is where they say, over at MSNBC, they don't care that the American people are going to struggle and they can't pay for more expensive gas. That's not the case at all. Obviously, everyone is sensitive to Americans who have to pay more for gas. But unfortunately, for the time being, that is going to be the price of war for the American people. And when you think about what other things it could cost us, like us having our own military on the front lines, paying more for gas for the time being is a much is much cheaper than what a military option would be. And that's where we are. This is the economic tool we can use to squeeze Russia. Right. And indeed, and Congressman, you know, there there are things that maybe at the margins that, you know, Congress could do to weigh in rather than, you know, sort of backing what the president is doing. I mean, you could mess with the the, the gas tax, right, which is probably not great uh, long term for the environment. Um, you could sort of lever that down. Are there other small things? Because I, I hate to break it to folks who are watching. Stephanie will high five me on this virtually. The president of the United States does not control the price of gas. Joe Biden does not decide, does not control the price of gas. He can't do much to control the price of gasoline. That's not the way it works. But there are small things that what, that could be done in terms of dealing with the gas tax. Is, is that being considered at yeah, all I mean, legislatively? I think, I think everyone, I think Stephanie has it exactly right. I think people are very, very aware of how difficult this is for working families in this country. The president has released uh, the uh, reserves from the petroleum reserves to help increase the supply of gasoline in this country to help stabilize the price. He's called on producers to produce more, uh, particularly our allies uh, around the world. And he's really called out, you know, the presidents of these American oil companies to be sure that they're not using this as an opportunity to gouge people to take advantage of this situation. But Stephanie is absolutely right. What is happening in Ukraine is a humanitarian disaster, an unjustified illegal war that is that is devastating a country. I was just at the Ukraine-Polish border and millions of refugees are leaving that country. We have a responsibility to do everything we can to put an end to this war and this suffering that has uh, resulted from Vladimir Putin's aggressions. And uh, if we are going to be forced to pay some additional costs for gas, we're going to have to be prepared as a country to do that. The Ukrainian people are willing to give their lives to fight for their freedoms and to fight for democracy. I think everyone in the world has to do their part to support that effort. And we're going to do everything we can to mitigate the impact of this decision. But I think it's absolutely right. The American people do not want to finance this war, do not want to finance the deadly machine that is killing women and children and innocent civilians. And if we can choke off the revenue supply to Russia and cripple their economy, Vladimir Putin won't be able to finance this aggressive campaign. So I think Americans are ready to do their part, and we're going to try to figure out ways to mitigate the impact on working families in this country. It won't be easy, but it's the right thing to do. Joy, it's and Stephanie, you know, I, I rarely get to report. I rarely get to report good news that American co- corporations you take a lot of heat for some of their practices. I mean, companies are out of there, right? Levi's mm-hmm. is out, McDonald's is out after a lot of pressure. Nike, Coca-Cola, Starbucks, L'Oreal. It's leaving the Russian economy decimated. So I think you are seeing, you know, everyone sort of ganging up together to try to isolate this country economically. But, but I wonder if the thing that we're leaving on the table, you know, Joe Manchin, you know, he won't like it. He's already said, "Ooh, we could maybe get." More, pump more oil. He's already out there with the drill, baby, drill stuff. You've got Republicans already trying to play politics with the gas prices. Wouldn't the Occam's razor answer here be to say, hey, let's pull back out that old bill back better bill and get off oil, <laughs> get off oil as much as possible, as soon as possible? Why is that not talked about as an option? 
It absolutely can and should be. It is in the EU. We heard it yesterday. They're basically speeding up their green plan by a decade. This is a moment to say, hold on a second. Maybe what we need to do is stop using so much oil and gas so we don't have to go to countries like Saudi Arabia and Venezuela and potentially Iran with our hat in our hand saying, hey, we're going to need some help here. This just yesterday, Florida, Republican Florida lawmakers took away the subsidies to put solar on buildings and homes, the things that are incentivizing people to go green. This is a perfect opportunity to do it economically, environmentally, across the board. We absolutely should consider it. The one other thing to think about with all those businesses leaving Russia, which is a good thing, it could backfire. Putin doesn't care if the Russian people suffer. He has shown that for decades. So now that he's humiliated and backed into a corner, that could only make him more aggressive. And that's very scary. Yeah. One thing that is absolutely true, he clearly does not care about the people of Russia who are being certainly they're being isolated and economically destroyed because of this one man's mad ideas. Um, Congressman David Cicilline, Stephanie Rule, thank you very much. Really appreciate you both. Before we go, we do have some major news on the January 6th front. Guy Reffitt, the first January 6th riot, the January 6th insurrectionist defendant to go on trial, was found guilty today on all five charges against him. And earlier today, federal agents arrested arrested former Proud Boys National Chairman Henry Enrique Tarrio in Miami on conspiracy charges, alleging that he played a leadership role in the January 6th attack. And up next, heavier than expected casualties, low morale and logistical log jams. Why Putin's invasion, despite its brutality, is failing on multiple fronts. We'll be right back. everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at MSNBC.com. In what may be a response to a slower-than-anticipated takeover, Vladimir Putin is going full-fledged Aleppo on Ukraine, flattening and destroying entire cities the way his army did in Syria, and further escalating a humanitarian crisis that has left tens of thousands of people without food, water, power, or heat. It just shows you what a cornered, bunker-down despot is capable of when things don't go his way. Moscow's military, st- military strength might be larger with advanced weapons, but as the New York Times notes, Those forces have become bogged down, struggling with logistical problems, apparent poor troop morale and tactical errors that Ukrainian troops have exploited. Ukraine says the country's forces have killed a second Russian general within days of a general killed last week. U.S. intelligence agencies estimate that up to 4,000 Russian soldiers have been killed during the two-week-long invasion of Ukraine. Just put that in context for a second. The U.S. 
had around 2,500 military deaths during our 20-year war in Afghanistan. Here is satellite video showing the long parade of Russian armored vehicles, some 40 miles long, heading toward Ukraine's capital. For days, it has not been moving. U.S. officials attribute the apparent stall to logistical challenges on the Russian side, challenges they believe the Russians did not anticipate. The resistance may continue to surprise, but we also know Putin's answer to surprise has always been brutality. And according to U.S. intel chiefs, he's likely, he's unlikely to be deterred. We assess Putin feels aggrieved the West does not give him proper deference and perceives this as a war he cannot afford to lose. He has no sustainable political endgame in the face of what is going to continue to be fierce resistance from Ukrainians. Okay. (laughs) Much more on today's stark U.S. intel assessment next. What are the war's lasting implications? And what is President Putin capable of as world powers back him into a corner? We'll be right back. Russia, of course, also remains a critical priority and is a significant focus right now in light of President Putin's recent and tragic invasion of Ukraine, which has produced a shock to the geopolitical order with implications for the future that we are only beginning to understand, but are sure to be consequential. The director of national intelligence, Avril Haines, arguing today that the ripple effects from Putin's decision to invade Ukraine will be felt long after the war is over. Joining me now to discuss that is Nayara Haq, host of The World Tonight on BNC News and former White House senior director under President Obama. And Tom Nichols, contributing writer for The Atlantic. Thank you both for being here. I'm going to uh, I would normally do ladies first, but I want to ask you this, Tom. I have been you know, dying to ask you this all day. You know, when you when you have an army like the Russian army exposed as far less tactically um, prepared uh, for conflict um, as this one has been. And when they've exposed themselves in this direct way while their president of Russia is, is still demanding to be treated as a top tier power, I wonder if that in a way makes Putin more dangerous because all of his adversaries now know what his capabilities are and are not. He doesn't handle humiliation well, and this is Mm. pretty humiliating. Um, I think that that's part of the problem here. Um, There's going to be a lot of finger pointing inside Moscow about um, who's to blame for this. But this has been an ongoing problem with the Russian military. These were supposedly problems they had identified all the way back in 2008 after the war in Georgia, and that somehow they were going to um, straighten out and reform and fix and modernize. Uh, but the other problem, aside from the the, um, the hardware, is um, the Russians just aren't very good planners. They, they just don't seem to learn lessons very well. And the only thing they can fall back on is what you're seeing now, which is bringing in a very big hammer and flattening uh, a lot of areas that are full of civilians. So, yeah, I think this is going to make Putin more difficult to deal with because, um, you know, for all that talk about how he wants to, you know, people that are very worried that he's going to somehow swing west and take out NATO, um, he, he can't even get to Kiev and it's been two weeks. And that's um, really a remarkable thing. It's certainly not something I would have expected. The, the Russian army has underperformed even by my already somewhat low expectations. You know, it's interesting, Naira, that the one piece of um, sort of uh, sort of, you know, intel that that was not spot on um, as the the White House released lots of intelligence about what Putin would do. And they were right about everything except one thing that to Tom's point, they thought that they would be more effective in trying to take Kiev. They have not been able to do that at all. Um, 
Meanwhile, I want you to listen to what the Bill Burns, the CIA director, said about Vladimir Putin's potential mental state. Take a listen. A lot of my constituents think that Putin is crazy or he's playing crazy. Uh, in an open setting, how do you assess Putin's mental state? Um, I think his, his views, Congressman, on Ukraine and a lot of other issues have hardened over the years. I think he's far more insulated from other points of view and people who would challenge or question his, his views. In, in my opinion, that doesn't make him crazy, but it makes him extremely difficult to deal with because of the hardening of his views over time and the it, narrowing of his inner circle. It seems. You know, now you're from Gorbachev on, you know, American administrations have tried to view Russian leadership in the most positive light possible, have tried to sort of reset the relationship. Remember the big reset even during the Obama administration. You had George W. Bush saying he looked into Putin's eyes and got a sense of his soul. Um, You know, you've had, even with Putin himself, these attempts to try to treat him as a normal leader, not isolate him or treat him the way that we treat the leadership of, let's say, Iran or North Korea. How do you assume and presume, having worked in a previous White House, this White House is reassessing and recalibrating the way that they deal with him now that it turns out he's a lot more like Kim Jong-un than he is like Mikhail Gorbachev? Mm -hmm. That is part of an administration, Joy, that that used the term Russian reset quite often. And what we're seeing now is that that effort to turn the corner from that Cold War adversarial relationship has really only resulted in a person like Putin who made his, his moment of trauma when the Berlin Wall fell and he stood there and watched the Soviet Union collapse and he stood there in defense of the last outpost of the KGB in the West, right? That was such a formative part of his experience. We thought we could move him past that with some economic exchange or some cultural exchange, but he has outlasted and nearly three to four presidents uh, and is now using this moment of what he thought would be weakness coming out of a Trump administration to take over Ukraine. That what Barr mentioned about his mindset, this is the mindset of an aging man who was trying to grasp in his last moments of mortality at some legacy of, of power and strength and is turning out to be a cornered cat. Now, the danger of a cornered cat is that he will lash out and strike out being cornered. And he has the opportunity to do that with nuclear weapons, which is not something that Iran or North Korea were able to do when they were isolated from the rest of the world. Well, and and Tom, that is, I think, the question that is sort of lingering in the back of at least those of us who are old enough to remember having done the the drills. And I was in Colorado. We were like 50 miles from ground zero. It's like, what are these? What's the point of hiding under our desks? Right. Um, But that was sort of the thinking that, that I grew up with. There are some really horrendous cards that Putin could play. Tactical nuclear weapons. Um, he does have an American, Brittany Griner, WNBA star. He has custody, you know, of her. His, his government has her. I, I worry about his mental state and what he might be willing to do. Do you? Uh, I do, um, although I'm going to object to that cat metaphor, just speaking up for cats, um, as I must. <laughs> Um, I, I'm, I'm very concerned about his mental state. And I think, you know, when when you're hearing the director of the CIA talk about how isolated he is, I think that's how he got into this situation in the first place. Someone told him um, that this was going to be um, a walkover, that this was going to be a, you know, four or five day operation. And I'm very concerned that he is also there's a there's a lot bound up in here with advisors um, in the Orthodox Church. Um, of which I am a member, uh, and and um, that there is a really tragic 
um, escalation here that is part of an of a fratricidal war that has a lot to do with um, religion and what he's been told about being a great Russian figure to somehow restore the unity of the Russian people and the Orthodox faith, and um, you know the, that that's how he got into the war. But the problem is, again, as the as Director Byrne said, he he doesn't have a viable exit strategy here. Um, he didn't think through what what happens if the Ukrainians fight. What happens if all of this turns out to be wrong? So he could play some pretty awful cards. And I, I, I want to add one thing that the apparently the national intelligence estimate is that he still doesn't want or that the Russian government doesn't want a direct war with the United States. But what he could do is put so many pieces in motion and raise the specter of of accidents and miscalculations um, it, as an attempt to to try to get his way. And I really worry about that. I really worry not about what he would do intentionally, but about the forces he'll set in motion and then that he could lose control of as well. Yeah. And Nayira, lastly to you, this refugee crisis, we're talking about one in 20 Ukrainians have now left this country, but not just Ukrainians. There are African migrants, there are Indian migrants. There are questions of what, where do these people stay? You know, many times when you become a refugee, you don't go back. You wind up living where you go. And I wonder what you make of Europe's ability to absorb maybe twice this many. We don't know how many more. What do you make of it? Yeah, Joy, this uh, this refugee crisis we're seeing right now is already two million people in the last week and a half that have left Ukraine. They have a land border, so they're able to actually cross over. They don't have the perilous journey that many of the Syrian refugees had to cross the Mediterranean, go through Greece. But that crisis in 2015 that stunned Europe was 1.5 million people. And this is already mm. more than that. Yet we are seeing a reaction from the European Union that is more welcoming. They have given Ukrainians... Yeah. Uh, three years without having to prove any papers. Uh, so identity is certainly playing a big part in the European response. Indeed. Nayara Hop, Tom Nichols, thank you both very much. Really appreciate you. We'll be right back. Ukrainians who've remained in their country have shown incredible resiliency in the face of dire circumstances. One musician shared video of her performance at a Kharkiv bomb shelter last week. Despite the brave images, the fact is we are witnessing a spiraling humanitarian crisis. The U.N. says more than two million Ukrainians have become refugees since Putin began his invasion. More than one million have crossed the border into Poland. Joining me now from the Polish border with Ukraine is NBC News correspondent Ellison Barber. Ellison, give us a sense of the magnitude. I mean, it's hard to sort of get your mind around two million people on the move um, and a lot of them headed to the Polish border. Yeah, I mean, two million people in 13 days, the speed that we're seeing so many people leave, it really is staggering. And when you're at these border crossings and you see just buses and buses and buses crossing through full of people, women and children predominantly, it really is hard, even though we have seen it for days now, we have seen it in person at six different border crossings, it is still hard to totally wrap your mind around it. Most of the people that we're seeing crossing into Poland, it is women and children. We have met so many incredibly brave mothers who have made the decision to leave behind 
everything they know and come to another country so that their children have the chance to live a safe life. Anytime someone flees any refugee, they never, ever want to be a refugee. They all want to go home, but they have made an incredibly brave decision to move elsewhere, oftentimes to protect their family, their loved ones, and their children. We have met so many moms who have made that decision. We have also met moms who, as soon as they have crossed the border and gotten their own children to safety, they're calling back, trying to help other mothers, other people they know do the same. Listen. This is so scary. In my opinion, this is genocide. Genocide against Ukrainians. And if the world will not support us, it will be too difficult for us to come back to Ukraine. Me, as a refugee, I, I, will, be, I will be helping other refugees, actually. I will be helping mothers to move to Poland so they will feel safe. Because we don't actually know when the next bomb will be thrown on us. And every mother is really scared and worrying for their children. And I will do my best to help them, to help people. At border crossings at refugee welcome centers, makeshift refugee camps, a lot of the aid we're seeing is very loosely organized, a lot of different groups trying to help. That makes it really confusing for the people coming over, trying to figure out where they go from here. Initially, we were meeting a lot of people crossing into Poland because they had family or friends here that they were going to stay with. In the last 48 hours or so, most of the people we have met, they do not know anyone in Poland at all. This next wave, if you will, of people coming. It seems to be a lot of people who are coming to Poland and they have no idea where they will stay. We know the Polish government is running low on cots at some of these areas where they're letting people stay or at least stay a little while before they're transported further away from the border. They got about 200 cots from Vienna. Joy. Uh, this is a it, it is such a tragic situation. And thank you for bringing us that and that sound. And I think a lot of people need to understand that when people leave their countries, a lot of the times, you know, their children and their children's children will be Polish. They will not go back. A lot of the time when you leave where you are from, in the, especially in a situation of war, it's not like you go home. So we need to start thinking about how this impacts Europe as a whole long term. Alison Barber, thank you so much. That is tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.